Welcome to the Life Size City Urbanism Podcast. I'm Michael Koval Anderson. And coming here, never been here before, and then filming the Life Size City here, and really, you know, digging deep into uh, the actual issues. We're not doing uh, nightlife tourism. Uh, you know, we didn't Thank go. God. We didn't ride the new hop-on, hop-off bus. Uh, <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, sorry, not sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, man, it's incredibly complex. It's incredibly, you know, gritty and rough, which I kind of like in a city. But man, you got you got like some dysfunctional shit going on here. That's right. It's bizarre. In 2019, I went to Beirut to film an episode of my TV documentary series, The Life-Sized City. There was no shortage of material, believe me. It's going to be an amazing episode when it hits the airwaves after summer 2020. Habib Bata covers many topics as an investigative journalist. His BeirutReport.com is an independent outlet with articles written by him and other contributors, covering topics that the mainstream media don't bother with, and yet topics that are of utmost importance. During the Lebanon protests that started in October 2019, he quickly became the go-to guy to interview for international media outlets. He is, for me, synonymous with Beirut and the complex struggles here. He has forgotten more about the situation in his city than most people will ever know. This is part one of my interview with Habib. Part two will be out shortly, entitled Beirut's Archaeological Armageddon. How politicians, developers, and some of the world's leading architects are destroying history without accountability. For now, let's hear what Habib has to say about the state of affairs in this fascinating city. When my documentary team were preparing to come to Beirut in 2019, Habib was, of course, on the list of guests. We were told, however, that we shouldn't put his name on the official guest list when applying for shooting permits. That's how much of a thorn in the side of the authorities this journalist this Beiruti really is. Which, of course, made me want to interview him even more. We met at an outdoor cafe, with all the street sounds of the city as our soundtrack. I wanted to know what it's like to live in Beirut and to work here as a journalist. So as a journalist, you know, it's as an investigative journalist, it's like a gold mine, I find, <laughs> Beirut and Lebanon. Because uh, there are all these stories that are deep in the, in, in the mine. There's just so many stories happening in Lebanon on a given day. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's almost impossible how they actually create a newscast every night with, you know, summing it up in, you know, an hour. And usually that summary is a very uh, focusing on certain things and not others, let's say. So it leaves a lot out of the uh, coverage. And uh, there's, there's a need, too, for coverage, more better coverage. So I try to cover things that aren't being covered by both the Western media and the local media. It's constantly on your mind, you know, what's going on in this city. Uh, it, it might be a gold mine for, for reporters, but it's also a, like almost a bottomless crisis for people who live here. And so you try to help out by trying to demystify some of these problems because when you have so many problems in a city, uh, people start to imagine it as impossible. You know, everything is useless. No matter what, what you do is useless. What are you wasting your time for? writing about stuff. Lebanon will never change. You know, this is a mantra that you hear from people, especially politicians. It's never going to change. Don't bother yourself trying. Um, and so it's very discouraging to people, I think, to be always met with this answer that is you can't do anything and you can't ever understand. Or they just say things like, it's corruption. 
It's bad people and bad culture. What does that mean? What do you do with that information? Just what? <laughs> Jump off a, a bridge or, or get on a plane? I mean, it doesn't really give you the way that we talk about our problems as well in Lebanon is because there's so many, because people are so um, worn down and beaten down by all these years of war and, uh, and, and instability and, 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 and huge unemployment today. You know, it's like an economic war, not just a civil war. People are uh, just suffering just to, just to survive from paycheck to paycheck. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's great to, you know, give people more information about what's happening. And, and no, it's not you, it's not your culture, it's not who you are. You know, these things can be changed. You know, it's, it's mismanagement. It's unbridled corporate power. You know, uh, it, it's, it's, it's names of companies and individuals who are actually doing things. The more that we generalize, we obscure responsibility. And this is a constant problem that politicians want us to say, oh, it's just corruption, it's just our Lebanese nature. So that you don't actually come and ask questions about the actual names of companies uh, that they might even not be non-Lebanese. A lot of, you know, there's a lot of partnerships between Lebanese companies and European companies or American companies who are actually doing a lot of um, projects that are very destructive mm -hmm. in this country. So it's good to assign accountability, you know, with specific details instead of just, you know, chalk everything up to that's life. And that's what I try to do. In a previous episode of this podcast about the urban revival narrative, I talked to people from Medellin in Colombia, Detroit, and Italy about how cities try to rise again and the narrative they create about it. But here in Beirut, in Lebanon, they had nowhere to go but up. I wanted to talk to Habib about the journey Beirut embarked on since the end of the brutal civil war that lasted from 1975 to 1990. How this country emerged from a war and what choices were made and by whom and what course was charted. Because, quite frankly, weird things have happened and continue to happen here on a scale unseen in many places in the world. And it's not something we hear too much about. This is a tale about Lebanon, but it's very much an urban tale about its capital, Beirut. A cautionary tale about warlords, an oligarchy, and rampant developers teaming up to exploit a fragmented system after having basically designed it themselves. You know, in Lebanon, people often say that the post-war period or the reconstruction period was even more violent than the war itself. And that's a really interesting, I think, a case study, Lebanon, as we look at other countries who are coming out of wars and what happens to a country after a war. What does a post-war period look like? What does a reconstruction look like? So what happened in Lebanon, the way that they got over the war was by creating a law, an amnesty. Uh, basically, nobody goes to jail for the crimes they've committed. And we had people who committed you know, massacres and mass killings. Uh, leaders of militias who just uh, randomly shelled neighborhoods, you know, killing, you know, tens of thousands of people. These uh, warlords, instead of facing justice at the end of the war, they were given, uh, you know, a clean slate to keep on doing what they were doing. But they changed their tactics. So instead of, you know, wearing uh, militia clothes and fatigues, they, you know, they got suits and ties. Um, instead of driving around tanks, you know, they, they, they run ministries. Um, instead of uh, shelling neighborhoods, they can cut off the water or, uh, you know, hold up the process till their friend gets a contract, you know. And so instead of trying to take over uh, a neighborhood and put up a flag on a, on a, on a building, you know, uh, and take strategic territory, now they take strategic ministries. 
So that's a battle over who can put who's, uh, who, who, a battle for contracts. That's what the Lebanese government uh, is really involved in. And it's, it's who, who, can, who can hand the, and so everything gets, everything gets stopped in Lebanon because uh, the former warlords want to hand out contracts for infrastructure projects to their cronies. And, and they have this, and then if, if I can't give it to my friends and you can't give it to your friends, then the whole process just comes to a halt. So, so in a way, you know, the war in Lebanon never really ended, I believe, and many Lebanese believe that, because those who fought the war and those who, who, who led the war and profited from the war are now running the country during so-called peace. I mean, the, the issues here, man, you know, electricity, water, basic services, uh, the same, the warlords are now wearing suits and ties. Um, how do you identify the primary antagonist in, in, the, in the dramaturgy of, uh, of Beirut? Lebanon is not a, like most countries in the world that have central leaderships and central governments. That's what makes a state a state, is the government's ability to control all the territory and create one law and a monopoly on arms. But Lebanon isn't really a state, uh, as you would think of a state. Uh, Lebanon is kind of like 20 countries in one. You know, Lebanon has like 20 presidents. Uh, in Lebanon, those who are elected might be less powerful than those who are not elected. Um, and it's the same all over the world. When you're talking about neoliberalism and capitalism, you know, business, businesses are more powerful than governments in many cases. But here you see that even on the policing level and the basic service level. So um, one neighborhood or one village might be doing pretty well and huge parts of the country might be you know, without water or, or without basic services. And, uh, and so there isn't really one person in charge of Lebanon at any given moment. You know? So it's, it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, uh, Lebanon is probably one of the freest countries in the Middle East. Uh, you can get away with a lot of saying a lot of things. You can criticize every party in the country. Um, if you, you know, as long as you don't use too slanderous of terms. But on the other hand, um, you know, you can't get basic services like, you know, trash collection and electricity and, 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 and potable water and your faucet. You've got to buy bottled water. You've got to have a backup generator. So there is the bad thing about having nobody in charge is that basic things don't get done and everything kind of becomes very chaotic. The good part is that nobody can really say, hey, you can't say that. Nobody really controls the military. Nobody really controls all the police. There are different branches and factions. And um, so, you know, dictators can't just come to power and manipulate the state for its purposes because the state is already cut up into so many pieces. It doesn't really function as a as a, as a one uh, animal, right? Mm -hmm. so, th so that's that's the good thing about it. So, so if I was to assign, how do, how do I assign blame in that kind of situation where you have uh, probably at least 10 major uh, political leaders uh, who all consider themselves the leader of the country um, when you have uh, just dozens of millionaires and billionaires uh, who, who are running the show, often in cahoots. Uh, I think a lot of uh, what we see presented to us in the media is uh, two diametrically opposed sides. You know, one is pro-U.S. and one is pro-Iran, um, uh, and uh, and these coalitions uh, supposedly never, uh, you know, are, are have have dramatically different ideologies. 
about where they want the country going. But in reality, we see that members of both these political coalitions in Lebanon are often involved in the same kind of real estate projects. And in some cases, they're involved in the same exact real estate project. They're, they're shareholders. So what we really have is kind of an oligarchy in Lebanon of powerful men who are businessmen, uh, tend to own banks, or uh, are former militia warlords who have become very cozy with the business elite in the country. So it's, it's a really uh, layered and entrenched system that comes from years of conflict as well. So where do we start when we assign blame? How do we get here in Lebanon? How do we get to a situation? Well, you know, is it just a, is it a civil war that we had in Lebanon? Or is it an international war? I think the word civil war is, um, is a miscommunication in some sense. Because there, first of all, uh, you know, we don't make weapons in Lebanon. Okay, they've got to come from somewhere. And throughout the Lebanese war, weapons were provided by many countries. Many European countries, the United States had uh, a big involvement here. So Civil war is a lucrative market yeah. for uh, weapons suppliers. It was an international war. Yeah. And I think it's the same thing that's happening in Syria and all over. You know, these are not just local people who decided to get angry. Um, you know, these are global uh, players that are putting money into these conflicts and fueling them. So it's hard to assign blame. You know, there's local blame, there's foreign blame, but then there's all the international lending and monetary uh, organizations that, you know, loan money to these countries and, 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 and they face these huge debts. Lebanon faces one of the highest debts in the world. Uh, the local banks also have a huge share of that debt and they profited very handsomely from extremely high interest rates at the end of the Civil War. Um, so there's, there's a billionaire class, there's a feudal class that goes back even further. Lebanon's history is very feudal. We had these uh, families who have been in power for hundreds of years uh, and, and are still around. So you have the feudal class, you have the military class, you have the billionaire class, you have the, uh, just the ideology of uh, extreme capitalism that we have in Lebanon, which is that you can uh, build whatever you want, wherever you want, with very little uh, government interference, that private property is sacred, um, you know, that, that, that there really isn't a state. So how do you even, how do you even assign blame when there isn't really a state that can be held responsible, when the state is cut into so many pieces? So, you know, Lebanon is, uh, like any place, uh, faces a variety of challenges. Uh, but um, at this point, the biggest challenge has been the pollution issue. We know we face a severe issue, which is that we're dumping our waste into the Mediterranean Sea. Our rivers are polluted. We're one of the most water-rich countries in the Middle East, but our uh, uh, sewage is not treated. Why isn't the sewage treated? Well, that's another, you know, every public service problem has so many layers and so many players. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that we do make in journalism and um, in politics and Lebanon activism is to assign one person to blame. To think that at the end of this labyrinth of problems, one person, shadowy person, lies at the end of it, and we could just so and if in a and, dark room. yeah, and if we could just you know stop that person, we could fix this problem. But that's not true, and it and it's kind of the same thing we've seen in the Middle East. I think with all of these uh, uprisings, is that we think oh, if we could just remove one dictator, then everything will be fine, um, and that hasn't been the case. Obviously, from Iraq to Syria to Libya, uh, those countries have faced even more devastating. Uh, results uh, after those uh, decapitations and uh, 
you know, coup, uh, regime changes. So uh, it's, it's similar with any public service problem. You know, it's not just, you know, uh, you know, Hariri or Hezbollah we can blame. You know, they've, they've all got a labyrinth of uh, uh, networks and, and people and, and they belong to other networks and there are other parties, they have other collaborators um, that, 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 that perpetuate the system. So, I mean, these, these, kind of, these kind of regimes have very deep roots and they've been in power for decades and they employ, you know, tens of thousands of people who feel like all have a stake in, in, the, in survival. So, you know, ministries in Lebanon are full of people who probably are not qualified to do those jobs but needed a job and were put there because some politician said that, you know, I'm going to make myself look good by hiring some people. And... Um, so where do you start assigning blame? Should people not be working? What do they do if they don't have this job? You know, they don't have jobs anywhere else. Uh, unemployment's very high in the country. So you have a lot of catch-22 situations. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the other day I was watching an ambulance uh, uh, try to go into a hospital. And there was a water truck, okay, blocking the ER uh, entrance. <laughs> the water truck was giving water to the hospital because the hospital runs out of water because the government doesn't provide water. There's the streets in Lebanon are so narrow and they're ancient. You know, some of them will go back hundreds of years. You can't widen them. So where else is the truck going to park? But in the middle of the street. Uh, and then so you have this collision of a healthcare problem, urban design problem, a lack of space problem. It's also a very tight squeeze. Lebanon's a very everything's a tight squeeze in Beirut. It's one of the most densely populated cities in the world. You know, people are. Uh, uh, the roads are, are one-way roads in the city and, and, and they're double parked and there's barely enough room to, to, to kind of get out of one building <laughs> and into another. Um, and, and so there's a, very, a huge lack of space in the city. There's no space. Uh, there's a lot of people who live here and very little space, very little flat space. Lebanon's a very mountainous country, so the flat spaces are, um, you know, and, and then the, the property values are very high too because of this idea we have that, you know, the supply side economics, that you know, trickle down economics. This is, this is also a big issue here. That if you build huge fancy projects and huge towers, that they're gonna employ people and it's gonna trickle down to the population. But that's not always, that's not, I don't think that's ever almost true. Uh, the fact is, is that you build these uh, huge towers. First of all, you import cheap labor um, uh, that is not getting any health benefits and could, people could die on the job. These construction workers come from Syria. They're very poor. It's a very temporary, unskilled work um, that isn't, uh, isn't secure or safe for the workers. Uh, the building goes up in a couple years. The building goes up and then it causes a huge burden on this ancient, you know, 100-year-old pipes uh, in, in the city. Uh, and, and ancient road network, so it causes more traffic and more power uh, issues and, and more uh, water cuts and, 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 and so, so every problem kind of builds on the next problem. It's kind of hard to say where does it all end, where does it all start, but eventually we'll have to have a state that'll have to be able to set some rules down um, that will have to be able to provide something for these people. Uh, you can't just say we need rule of law and then you know people are suffering and, 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 and don't even have uh, money to pay the tickets that you're giving them or um, are not even educated about the issues that uh, can cause them to you know break laws you know so we have a, it's a very complicated issue let's say I think 
Um, but definitely, I think those at the top, those that are really making money and profiting in Lebanon today, are, are doing so at the expense of the public. So when people are super wealthy in Lebanon, you have to ask questions about how does that, um, how do they gain that wealth? And, uh, and is, it, is, it, is it being shared at all in this country? So in a country where there's so much devastation and so much need for basic things, there's also extreme wealth in this country where, you know, you, our last two prime ministers were billionaires in a country where people are making 500 bucks a month and don't have electricity or water. Our last two prime ministers were billionaires. How does that make sense? For all the historical feel to Beirut, many parts don't feel like a city to me. It feels like I'm one of those one-dimensional figures in an architectural rendering for a new development. Steel and glass towers are shooting up all over the place, but the architecture is largely gaudy, if not anonymous, despite the presence of fancy architects working in the city. On one heritage building in the heart of the city, I saw a huge sign that read, Stop Solidaire. To understand the current state of affairs in Beirut, I need Habib to explain what Solidaire is. So, one of the other marvels of the post-war period in Lebanon was this idea that we'll fix the country by privatizing it. So, everything doesn't work. If the government doesn't work, let's just privatize everything, you know? So, the billionaire showed up and said, sell it to me, I'll fix it. Um, and that's what happened with many things in Lebanon, from the telecom network was partially privatized uh, to the actual city of Beirut. So Beirut is this historic uh, Arab capital that played a huge role in Arab intellectual thought and, and, uh, and, and has a huge role in ancient antiquity and, and the history of the whole world and the Roman Empire. This wonderful city was uh, wrecked you know, during the Civil War, um, it was the epicenter of fighting, and so a lot of the buildings were um, bullet-pierced and definitely needed a lot of repair work. So uh, the idea was, let's, the Prime Minister, who was Rafiq Hariri at that time, he was a billionaire who had made a lot of money in construction, and decided the best solution would be to create a private real estate company and build the city and make it beautiful and gorgeous, uh, fabulous, the way that those capitalists speak, you know. Um, and then that'll solve our problem. But, the, 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 but that didn't solve the main problem, which was, well, who's going to live there in this fancy uh, city that you're going to build? And, uh, and how much is it going to cost? So they created this company called Solidaire, which, is, uh, which turned the city into a corporation. It basically turned the old city of Beirut, old downtown Beirut, the heart of the city, uh, the historic heart of the city, into a corporation that is traded on the stock market and the original inhabitants got shares in the company. Well, the shares were valued really low. Uh, the properties, the shares were assessed based on property uh, appraisals that were done by judges that many people believe to be beholden to the political establishment. So the judges, uh, you know, appraise properties for a few thousand dollars or a few tens of thousands of dollars. Um, and uh, people feel like they really got robbed. So basically, tens of thousands of people who had rights and land deeds in the old city were given these shares that were worth a few thousand dollars in many cases. And the properties ended up being redeveloped into selling for millions of dollars. So you can't find an apartment for less than three or four million dollars 
that's a brand new beautiful building in, in these uh, developments we see in downtown Beirut. And so, you know, the project was to rebuild the city, this private company that was founded by the prime minister, who was the largest shareholder. Um, and the board of directors of this company, Solidaire, are the richest people in Lebanon, you know, the heads of major steel companies and cement companies. And so it all kind of gels together where this oligarchy of uh, wealthy businessmen and political uh, elites get together and decide to build a new city for a new people. So it wasn't really a reconstruction of Beirut, first of all, because during the war, when the old city got abandoned, people, the city expanded. And so now the city is, is, is you know, 10 times at least bigger than the old city. Uh, but they chose to focus only on the old city to make it some kind of uh, kitsch museum piece Disneyland, where yeah, yeah, people call it Disneyland because you had these, you know, you had a city like any Arab city or any world city, right? Even New York City is pretty gritty. You know, it's gritty, it's dirty, it's got its uh, posh parts, it's got its parts that are, you know, working class parts. Um, uh, but what they did to downtown Beirut is they kind of airbrushed the city. And so everything is, you know, sandblasted and beautiful they bought the best materials the best marble uh, they spent all kinds of money making this it looks like a movie set you know it looks like you took an old city and just painted it and 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 and, uh, and basically uh, you know what's the word when you uh, you know uh, pimp your ride you know I mean you pimp the city you know basically made it into this fantasy city um, that really was no longer a city because it didn't have any life, you know, it, it, it was just the prices were made so, uh, uh, so high, so inaccessible to the public that it's become an island for the rich. It's become this gilded city that has nothing to do with the rest of the city that's around it. And so all this money and effort went into building this beautiful, perfect city while the rest of the capital suffered. The power outages, the water shortages, um, the complete chaos of the streets, no public transportation, no really law enforcement and the driving. And so, it, so it's this island of wealthy people in a sea of chaos around it, which is the rest of Beirut. And so the claim that they've rebuilt the city, no, they've, they've, they've created a new mini city real estate project. And that's kind of the story of Solidaire that's continuing. I mean, first of all, if you own property in downtown and you wanted to stay and go back to your property, which is kind of what you would think the idea of reconstructing is, people come back to their houses and you know, fix them up and live in them again, um, you had to abide by very strict Solidaire standards, which is you know, the, the finest marble, the finest paints, the finest wood, you know, even imported from the US, I think the wood had to be. So you put this burden on people coming out of a war to spend all this money to create five-star establishments doesn't really make sense. So most people couldn't actually afford those standards. And that was the best, the easiest way of making people accept these shares for their property. So the shares were, you know, again, it was like peanuts um, compared to what the properties are valued today, uh, number one. What, what, what we're supposed to get in exchange for this great transformation of our city was that this private company was gonna also give back to the country. It was gonna give us parks and public spaces and museums and it was going to unearth the history of the city and, and show it in a new way and showcase it to the people 
um, and, and all these public services. But none of that really happened. You know, we never got any parks or museums and there was a few public spaces but they were kind of spaces that were, you know, didn't have many benches and, and didn't have any bathrooms or didn't have anything. They were just kind of decoration, decorative spaces for the buildings. Um, so it was kind of a lie that was sold to the public that you would get something back from this project when today you can't find a lot of working class Lebanese using this space. Because, you know, again, if I have uh, a family, four or five kids, and I'm living on a 500 bucks or a thousand bucks a month, I can't go spend 300 bucks on a lunch for them in that part of town, which is what a lunch would cost for a family that size in a lot of these establishments. So people just avoid it. So now it's become a city that, a part of the city people just avoid. They don't have no reason to go there. They, most people can't afford it. It's largely a ghost town. Oh, now I mean, you and I were there two days ago, just for for the record. I mean, yeah. yeah, and we what you counted the on the little roundabout there, uh, all the different cafes, uh, ten tables. I think you you did the count, right? Yeah. It was like ten tables of people sitting like there. Like ten restaurants and ten tables. Like yeah. every restaurant has one or two tables, yeah. and that's good business for them. So we have this kind of, and the streets are largely empty. You know, uh, in this whole city, you might find a few hundred people at one time in these shopping areas. And, but um, we were filming there, right? So uh, you, with you, and uh, it's just military on, all, on that one part of the, of, the, of the downtown. Every entrance had soldiers in different, weird, different uniforms. I couldn't figure out who's who, maybe you know. Yeah. But I mean, it's a, you know, and we, were had, we had a hassle getting in there with our camera, even though we had permits, and, and uh, super weird place, man. I mean, really one of the weirdest places I think I've seen in a, in a, in a global city. Oh, yeah. It's a tightly surveilled, controlled city. You have security on every corner watching to make sure that the, you know, the paupers don't come in and mess it up. They don't want poor people in that place. Uh, you know, they want to monitor closely everybody who comes in and out. They want the riffraff away, you know. And, you know, Solidaire also kind of speaks to an approach to government in Lebanon, which is a very, uh, elitist and anti-poor uh, uh, people uh, uh, policies that they're implementing, which is that they, they view the poor as a threat, as dangerous, uh, needs to be kept away, um, are only going to ruin things. So you'll find that there's some public spaces in Lebanon that are closed because they don't want let people to use them. I mean, the main park of Beirut was closed for 20 years, uh, only open to foreigners. Because again, they trust... Porsche Beirut. Yeah, they, yeah. they, they trust wealthy foreign tourists, but they don't trust their own population. And that's happening in the municipality of Beirut, has that attitude, a very, a very um, uh, uh, combative attitude toward poor people. Um, and it's a very exclusive and elitist organization. Solidaire as well has the same kind of attitude. There's, they don't offer anything to people who are not rich. So what are they offering? What are they reconstructing if they're only providing they really, they really want to import new people. They don't want us. They don't want the old people of Beirut. They don't want the poor, you know, tired masses of Beirut. They want to bring in wealthy capitalists. You know, uh, they want capital inflows from other countries, uh, foreign capital. And they have this fantasy that all these foreign companies are just dying to set up base in Beirut. Well, it didn't happen. So now we have this empty city. Now, all the coastline is just, you know, it's been, the land has been grabbed for resorts and hotels and whatnot. Uh, then, but then there's this huge, like, landfill development right off the coast of, uh, of downtown. Tell me about uh, yeah. that monster. So the, the project of rebuilding, quote-unquote rebuilding Beirut, or a small little portion of Beirut, 
um, had two phases. And the first phase was that they demolished most of the old city. There were about a thousand buildings in old Beirut. About 700 were demolished and they kept 200 buildings or so and change. Uh, they have all this rubble <laughs> from all these destroyed buildings, basically uh, the, 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 the remains of Beirut. They dump the remains of the city into the sea off the coast to create more land, more real estate. And it's about 800,000 square meters they have created off the coast of the city, which they estimate now is parceled into plots that is worth, you know, four to five billion dollars. They've created new land out of water. Uh, there are a lot of constitutional issues with this. So that's phase two of the project is, you know, phase one is we tear down the old city, build a bunch of new towers, and then we take the rubble and we kill another new city on the coast of it. And so this is the waterfront district, they're calling it. You know, one of these great real estate terms uh, where they're gonna have mixed offices and you know, they wanna have a Formula One racetrack there as well. They've come up with oh, all man. kinds of ideas. Uh. And, uh, and that plan has changed over the years. We don't really know. There's not a lot of transparency with the company. So uh, we don't really know what their future plans are, what, what, what they plan to build there exactly. Uh, what plots have been sold, how much money they've been made, making from these plots. You know, this company has made billions of dollars. The company today has valued itself around $8 billion or more, according to the chairman's letter. Um, which valued has, itself. Yeah, which they actually yeah. edited and they erased that number from the internet, which is really interesting. They uh -huh. changed the, uh, they, they, they uploaded the, a new chairman's letter and they removed that detail. So the company is worth, you know, around $8 billion, according to their own estimates. At the same time, the city is now one of the most indebted in the world and has no public services. So we can see who kind of made out good in this deal. Yeah, um, not the people. <laughs> and, and, and so, but we don't even know how good that they made out because we don't know how much money they made. We don't know how much money they paid. We don't know what the payments were to the original tenants. All this information is secret. Um, so how can you really create a, a, a future when you don't even have any transparency about what's going on if, in a country that's you know, trying to reconcile its past? So we have this phase two, which is this giant landfill, okay? Actually, it was also a landfill, a garbage landfill during the war. Um, because the war, there was no public services, kind of like now. Um, so what has changed really is that they had a giant garbage dump. Uh, they took that garbage dump, added to it all the rubble of the city, sorted it out, flattened it out, and they created this huge new island that they're going to sell off, uh, or peninsula. Uh, another island for the rich, though, yeah. uh, likely. Um, so, so, so now that's become a model that they want to keep implementing. So now with the current garbage crisis, we're once again taking all of our garbage and landfilling it along the coast, making the coastline uh, wider so that they can build more real estate. People are wondering that they're, they're just going to take all this garbage problem and create a real estate opportunity, create property out of landfill. Uh, it's kind of a scary thing, honestly. I mean, we don't know, is it toxic? Yeah, the environmental uh, impacts of just throwing all your garbage into the ocean and um, you know, making, uh, making land out of it. I mean, my God. I don't yeah, know. I don't know who wants to build on a landfill, um, and I don't know what, to what extent. We've also been trying to understand how are they building these landfills? Are they, is there any standards in place? Are there any kind of membranes, or what kind of membranes are being put laid down on the seafloor? Uh, to prevent this uh, leakage of this uh, garbage seeping into our you know, ecosystem. And there haven't been really convincing answers 
that have been given in very little detail about, you know, is it just, are they just dumping the waste straight into the sea with some, you know, little plastic sheet on the bottom? That's not really a protection, yeah. you know? Or what's the seawall made of? It's just, it's just concrete. You know, that, that can just, that's porous. So, um, over time, <laughs> in the sea. Uh, so, there are a lot of questions about what they're doing, and uh, there are people have a lot of health concerns. So, um, you know, I, I can say one thing. I'm, I'm optimistic about activism in Lebanon. There are a lot of people that are fighting these problems. Uh, people that are lawyers and engineers who, who know what the right questions to ask are, who know uh, what's going on, where, where the um, uh, possible dangers lie uh, in these projects technically, on a technical level. Because it's very difficult for Levy people to have to face this reality. You have to become like a telecom engineer, a, a waste management engineer, you know, a, a electricity uh, specialist to understand what's happening around you. That's why I kind of do the work that I do, because I try to simplify things and try to explain to the public in a way, um, teach the public about these public sector problems and how complicated they are. But people can't do it on their own. They can't figure this stuff out. So a lot of an, um, experts who have become activists are trying to work on these problems now across Lebanon. And they're you know, increasingly you know, doing interventions, doing campaigns, able to stop some projects and question projects and point out the dangers to the public. Um, but it's very difficult. They've also begun to organize some political parties and run in elections and very few independents have won, but I do feel we are kind of, they are, there are more independent parties every election cycle. And there's more anger with the situation around us that's, um, you know, inspiring more people to become activists and create collectives and create campaigns and work on problems. So it's very um, encouraging. But the environmental catastrophe that we're dealing with isn't very encouraging and is only getting worse. And that's what really worries me about Lebanon today is this environmental disaster that we're living in. In some ways, Lebanon is kind of in the future of climate change. Uh, you know, we're seeing the destruction of the natural environment all around Lebanon. We've seen the destruction of so many species no longer uh, exist in Lebanon wildlife. Um, and. Uh, the situation seems to be getting worse with this idea that we're now going to just fill our shores with garbage, literally. Um, for profit for the developers also, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm optimistic about the political situation, but I'm concerned that it's not too late uh, to actually, uh, I don't think it's ever too late, but I think that we need to really shift the focus on this catastrophe that's happening to our country and not get so hung up on politicians and what they said or what they did or, or which ones we prefer or which ones are pro-Western or not pro-Western, you know. The, 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 the Western countries tend to, uh, you know, fixate on creating a leadership in Lebanon that they can manipulate. They want a leadership that they like. So, you know, so much money is invested by Western countries to try to create activities and programs to support, you know, political agendas. Uh, when we really need to address this environmental disaster that we're facing. You know, what's, what's the water gonna be like in Lebanon? All of our rivers and lakes and, um, and our, our sea is being polluted. Uh, you know, our air quality level is becoming terrible. And that's, a lot of that's part of this development craze. All this construction, all these generators, um, so many cars, you know, so much emphasis on the private sector. Let's sell more cars instead of actually create a, a public transport system. No you know? buses, man. No buses here. It's insane. 
Uh, there are some buses, yeah. you know. Um, but like no, no city buses doing the. But they're uh, not regular. Yeah, network. they're not formal. They're often uh, broken down. People don't want to ride them. People yeah. prefer to, you know, unless you're really, really poor um, and you can't even afford a motorcycle, which a lot of poor people use, then you're going to use buses. But the majority of the people still end up driving their own cars because you can still afford a car for very cheap or a motorcycle in Lebanon. And so cars are cheap. Uh, uh, the government wants to encourage car dealers. Uh, why are we doing that instead of actually creating a livable city where we can get around it? So Beirut's becoming very unlivable. The challenges that this city faces are massive and at times seemingly insurmountable. Habib is brilliant at spelling it out, saying it like it is. The universal urban question why do you live where you live? Seems even more relevant here. Habib can travel. He can move somewhere else. But something is keeping him here in Beirut. And I want to know what that is. I live here. I've lived here for most of my life probably now. Um, and I feel like you just take an attachment to seeing, you know, where you live and, you know, getting better, you know, you, you just kind of, you have a stake in it. When I've watched Beirut change over the last 20 years dramatically from a city that was just, uh, just smoldering still, you know, from, from, the, from years and years of war and, you know, every building had holes in it. There wasn't like one square foot that didn't have a hole in it. Um, and not having, you know, any kind of, you know, uh, Westerners or tourists and, and seeing it at just the point where it was just the place where Beirut was synonymous with hell. You know, if you go back to a lot of American films and TV shows, it's like Beirut in here yeah, became right. this phrase at that time. And it really um, encapsulated what people thought about Lebanon. And um, so, so, you know, you're living in this country that has all these problems and, um, and, and, and had been through so much you know, devastating. Over 150,000 people were killed during the war. Uh, in a small country, it's a lot. Um, a country the size of an American city, really. Uh, and uh, so it was, it was very devastating to see all that. So one challenge I've always had in my career has been trying to, you know, uh, unpack stereotypes and, and, and all that stereotypes that you see about Beirut are ubiquitous in the media. And the, the second thing is just, you know, how does the country recover from a war? How does the country uh, rebuild or uh, reconcile the past? And those two things have been um, really huge challenges that I've watched the city cope with. So I guess I've, I've grown attached to it in the sense that it is, you know, where I spent a lot of my life and where a lot of my family and friends live. Um, and uh, so you just have a stake in wanting to see it improve and watching all the solutions over the years, you know, and all the announcements and the speeches and, and uh, proclamations of people and, and how that they, a lot of times, things seem to go backwards instead of forwards. Um, and so it's been interesting to, 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 to dissect all that. Well, thanks for your time, man. And, you know, I like a good urban deviant uh, anywhere in the world. and. Uh, you're one of the best, man. Thank Thanks. You. I don't think I'm a deviant. I think I'm just doing my job. Well, you're, you're deviating from the, the norms of corporate uh, interests, which is uh, which is the best kind of deviant. Yeah, right? which I think should be all of our, our job as journalists every day, yeah. is to really um, fight for, 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 for normal folks and ask the questions that normal folks want to ask and stop parroting um, official events 
and spending all of our time chasing politicians around and hanging on their every word. Thanks for your strong voice. Keep on keeping on, brother. Thank you so much for being here. All right. I recorded this interview with Habib Bata in mid-2019. Now we've just eased into 2020. While the situation in Beirut and Lebanon may sound like an uphill battle for democracy, equity, and basic justice, look at what just happened a few months ago. Starting on October 17, 2019, the people took to the streets. A series of civil protests erupted. They were triggered by proposed taxes on cigarettes, gas, and online services, but quickly morphed into a massive pushback against the oligarchy, sectarian rule, corruption, unemployment, and lack of basic services. Habib's strong, independent, and persevering voice is now part of a rousing choir of discontent in what used to be one of the world's great cities. A city and a citizenry that could and should be great once again. You've been listening to The Life-Sized City, my podcast about urbanism and urban change. As ever, this episode was produced thanks to red wine and coffee. The music was composed by Phil Creamer. Check out his website at www.hereonout.ca. I'm Michael Koval-Anderson. Thanks for listening.